Second part of chapter four of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Wendy Almeida. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter four. The Aristocratic Ideal. Part two. Theory that stations actually correspond to faculty. An aristocratic society might accordingly be a perfect heaven if the variety and superposition of functions in it expressed a corresponding diversity in its members' faculties and ideals. And indeed, what aristocratic philosophers have always maintained is that men really differ so much in capacity that one is happier for being a slave, another for being a shopkeeper, and a third for being a king. All professions, they say, even the lowest, are or may be vocations. Some men, Aristotle tells us, are slaves by nature. Only physical functions are spontaneous in them. So long as they are humanely treated, it is, we may infer, a benefit for them to be commanded. And the contribution their labor makes toward rational life in their betters is the highest dignity they can attain, and should be prized by them as a sufficient privilege. Such assertions, coming from lordly lips, have a suspicious optimism about them. Yet the faithful slave, such as the nurse we find in the tragedies, may sometimes have corresponded to that description. In other regions it is surely true that to advance in conventional station would often entail a loss in true dignity and happiness. It would seldom benefit a musician to be appointed admiral or a housemaid to become a prima donna. Scientific breeding might conceivably develop much more sharply the various temperaments and faculties needed in this state, and then each caste or order of citizens would not be more commonly dissatisfied with its lot than men or women now are with their sex. One tribe would run errands as persistently as the ants, another would sing like the lark, a third would show a devil's innate fondness for stoking a fiery furnace. It's falsity. Aristocracy logically involves castes. But such castes as exist in India and the social classes we find in the Western world are not now based on any profound difference in race, capacity, or inclination. They are based probably on the chances of some early war, reinforced by custom and perpetuated by inheritance. A certain circulation, corresponding in part to proved ability or disability, takes place in the body politic, and since the French Revolution has taken place increasingly. Some, by energy and perseverance, rise from the bottom. Some, by ill fortune or vice, fall from the top. But these readjustments are insignificant in comparison with the social inertia that perpetuates all the classes. And even such shifts as occur at once re-establish artificial conditions for the next generation. As a rule, men's station determines their occupation, without their gifts determining their station. Thus, stifled ability in the lower orders and apathy or pampered incapacity in the higher unite to deprive society of its natural leaders. Feeble individuality, the rule. 
it would be easy however to exaggerate the havoc wrought by such artificial conditions the monotony we observe in mankind must not be charged to the oppressive influence of circumstances crushing the individual soul it is not society's fault that most men seem to miss their vocation most men have no vocation and society in imposing on them some chance language some chance religion and some chance career first plants an ideal in their bosoms and insinuates into them a sort of racial or professional soul their only character is composed of the habits they have been led to acquire some little propensities betrayed in childhood may very probably survive one man may prove by his dying words that he was congenitally witty another tender another brave but these native qualities will simply have added an ineffectual tint to some typical existence or other and the vast majority will remain as schopenhauer said fabriquarin der nature variety in human dreams like personality among savages may indeed be inwardly very great but it is not efficacious to be socially important and expressible in some common medium initial differences in temper must be organized into custom and become cumulative by being imitated and enforced the only artists who can show great originality are those trained in distinct and established schools for originality and genius must be largely fed and raised on the shoulders of some old tradition a rich organization and heritage while they predetermine the core of all possible variations increase their number since every advance opens up new vistas and growth in extending the periphery of the substance organized multiplies the number of points at which new growths may begin thus it is only in recent times that discoveries in science have been frequent because natural science until lately possessed no settled method and no considerable fund of acquired truths so too in political society statesmanship is made possible by traditional policies generalship by military institutions great financiers by established commerce if we ventured to generalize these observations we might say that such an unequal distribution of capacity as might justify aristocracy should be looked for only in civilized states savages are born free and equal but wherever a complex and highly specialized environment limits the loose freedom of those born into it it also stimulates their capacity under forced culture remarkable growths will appear bringing to light possibilities in men which might perhaps not even have been possibilities had they been left to themselves for mulberry leaves do not of themselves develop into brocade a certain personal idiosyncrasy must be assumed at bottom else cotton damask would be as good as silk and all men having like opportunities would be equally great this idiosyncrasy is brought out by social pressure while in a state of nature it might have betrayed itself only in trivial and futile ways as it does among barbarians sophistical envy distinction is thus in one sense artificial 
since it cannot become important or practical unless a certain environment gives play to individual talent and preserves its originality but distinction nevertheless is perfectly real and not merely imputed in vain does the man in the street declare that he too could have been a king if he had been born in the purple for that potentiality does not belong to him as he is but only as he might have been if per impossible he had not been himself there is a strange metaphysical illusion in imagining that a man might change his parents his body his early environment and yet retain his personality in its higher faculties his personality is produced by his special relations if shakespeare had been born in italy he might if you will have been a great poet but shakespeare he could never have been nor can it be called an injustice to all of us who are not englishmen of queen elizabeth's time that shakespeare had that advantage and was thereby enabled to exist the sense of injustice at unequal opportunities arises only when the two environments compared are really somewhat analogous so that the illusion of a change of roles without a change of characters may retain some color it was a just insight for instance in the christian fable to make the first rebel against god the chief among the angels the spirit occupying the position nearest to that which he tried to usurp lucifer's fallacy consisted in thinking natural inequality artificial his perversity lay in rebelling against himself and rejecting the happiness proper to his nature this was the maddest possible way of rebelling against his true creator for it is our particular finitude that creates us and makes us be no one except in wilful fancy would envy the peculiar advantages of a whale or an ant of an inca or a grand llama an exchange of places with such remote beings would too evidently leave each creature the very same that it was before for after a nominal exchange of places each office would remain filled and no trace of a change would be perceptible but the penny that one man finds and another misses would not had fortune been reversed have transmuted each man into the other so adventitious a circumstance seems easily transferable without undermining that personal distinction which it had come to embitter yet the incipient fallacy lurking even in such suppositions becomes obvious when we inquire whether so blind an accident for instance as sex is also adventitious and ideally transferable and whether jack and jill remaining themselves could have exchanged genders what extends these invidious comparisons beyond all tolerable bounds is the generic and vague nature proper to language and its terms the first personal pronoun i is a concept so thoroughly universal that it can accompany any experience whatever yet it is used to designate an individual who is really definable not by the formal selfhood which he shares with every other thinker but by the special events that make up his life each man's memory embraces a certain field 
and if the landscape open to his vision is sad and hateful he naturally wishes it to shift and become like that paradise in which as he fancies other men dwell a legitimate rebellion against evil in his own experience becomes an unthinkable supposition about what his experience might have been had he enjoyed those other men's opportunities or even so far can unreason wander had he possessed their character the wholly different creature a replica of that envied ideal which would have existed in that case would still have called itself i and so the dreamer imagines that creature would have been himself in a different situation if a new birth could still be called by a man's own name the reason would be that the concrete faculties now present in him are the basis for the ideal he throws out and if these particular faculties came to fruition in a new being he would call that being himself inasmuch as it realized his ideal the poorer the reality, therefore, the meaner and vaguer the ideal it is able to project. Man is so tied to his personal endowment, essential to him, though an accident in the world, that even his uttermost ideal, into which he would fly out of himself and his finitude, can be nothing but the fulfillment of his own initial idiosyncrasies whatever other wills and other glories may exist in heaven lie not within his universe of aspiration even his most perversely metaphysical envy can begrudge to others only what he instinctively craves for himself inequality is not a grievance suffering is it is not mere inequality therefore that can be a reproach to the aristocratic or theistic ideal could each person fulfill his own nature, the most striking differences in endowment and fortune would trouble nobody's dreams. The true reproach to which aristocracy and theism are open is the thwarting of those unequal natures and the consequent suffering imposed on them all. Injustice in this world is not something comparative. The wrong is deep, clear, and absolute in each private fate a bruised child wailing in the street his small world for the moment utterly black and cruel before him does not fetch his unhappiness from sophisticated comparisons or irrational envy nor can any compensations and celestial harmonies supervening later ever expunge or justify that moment's bitterness the pain may be whistled away and forgotten the mind may be rendered by it only a little harder, a little coarser, a little more secretive and sullen, and familiar with unrightable wrong. But ignoring that pain will not prevent its having existed. It must remain forever to trouble God's omniscience and be part of that hell which the creation too truly involves. End of chapter 4, part 2